verses 3 to 12. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land and of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to the accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why don't you take a few moments uh, of silent and personally reflect upon uh, this word and reflect upon uh, what this word ultimately points to, uh, which is the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the worship team will lead us in some song. Verse 18, it says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, in my church, uh, last week I preached on uh, the passage that you probably expect to hear to be preached on, which is the passage where Jesus goes to the cross and dies. And uh, what I thought I'd do tonight is reflect on uh, just this one verse and maybe think about uh, some of the implications of what it means to understand the cross and to embrace the cross because I think if we embrace the cross as we ought, uh, I think the conclusion is this, uh, we're going to be fools in the world. You know, sometimes I think we, we try too hard to make Christianity uh, palatable and respectable and so we make Christianity to be about things like doing good in the world or things like social justice or we try to make Christianity sound uh, like a very intellectually plausible uh, worldview and philosophy, and so we employ all these sophisticated arguments, and uh, of course these are all good things to do. Uh, justice, doing good are all part of living the Christian faith. Uh, in my opinion, Christianity does present the most reasonable and cogent worldview. But here's the thing, uh, what we do tonight on Good Friday as we reflect and think upon the cross, which is perhaps the core of what the Christian faith is all about, 
A night like tonight reminds us of this. Christian faith at its core, a message about the death of Jesus Christ on a cross, it's not palatable. There's no way to make that palatable. You see, if you're, you're somebody who's familiar with the story of Jesus' death on a cross, uh, it's probably because you've been going to church for a long time, maybe, and uh, maybe you've kind of forgotten the, the absurdity of uh, what we're doing here tonight. Uh, if you are not a Christian or if maybe you're a new Christian, uh, then maybe you remember the days where you first heard the story about Jesus dying on a cross and you thought to yourself, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's, it's kind of what happens when we come to New York, right? We come to New York and we look at things that happen in New York, things that happen on the streets, things that happen in the subways, and we say, man, some of these things are weird, right? They're so strange. And uh, after a while, the familiarity of it uh, makes it very normal. And now we no longer find these things to be all that weird and strange anymore. But here's what I want to impress upon you today, especially if you're somebody who is just very familiar with the story and used to it. Uh, this is a story that is for fools. Uh, this is a story that makes no sense. Uh, this is a story that is one of the most absurd things uh, you may have even ever heard about. See, if you think about it, isn't it a little strange how Christians put so much focus on the bloody death of a man? Isn't it strange how uh, we have right, things like that and all these crosses around in this room, and uh, you kind of look at it, right, and disconnect yourself if you're a Christian, disconnect yourself from the fact that you're a Christian, and you kind of look at these things and you go, man, it's kind of weird, right? Why, why are we looking at these things? Why are we celebrating these things? Uh, it's kind of weird that Christians will wear things like a cross uh, around their neck. It's weird that what we're going to do later is we're going to partake in communion and we're going to remember the broken body of Christ and the, the shed blood of Jesus. It's kind of weird that we gather here on a Friday night, on, a, on Good Friday, to, to focus on this cross. And I think if we can temporarily distance ourselves from the familiarity of what the cross means, uh, I think we'll actually see the, the absurdity of it. You know, when I was in college, I had to, I had to read this liberal Bible scholar uh, by the name of John Dominic Crossan. And uh, I remember uh, when I read him, and some of the things he said is just kind of stark, because me coming as a Christian, I'm like, oh, you know, Jesus dying on a cross. And uh, I read his opinion, and he, he says this. He says, you know, the fact that somebody else has to suffer for our sins is obscene. Uh, the fact that God would sacrifice his own son to die this violent, bloody death on a cross, well, that's, that's a kind of transcendental child abuse. And to him, it makes absolutely no sense. If you've ever tried to talk to people about the message of the gospel, you might have said something like this, Hey, you know, Jesus, he died on a cross for your sins. What does that mean? It's a little nonsensical, is it not? If I'm the one who sinned, why is Jesus the one who had to die? What does his blood have to do with me? If God wanted to save us, if he really is God who's so powerful and, and so amazing, why couldn't he have done it in a, in a much less gruesome, violent way than the suffering of his son on a cross? And you see, for, for plenty of people throughout history, uh, th this cross makes absolutely no sense. 
You see, when something doesn't make sense to us, uh, it's very easy to dismiss it as foolish. And uh, I think oftentimes uh, we, we dismiss a lot of things as, as being foolish because we just don't understand. I remember reading this story how uh, you had a group of suburban middle-class college students and what they decided to do is they decided to go into the inner city because they wanted to help the youth of the inner city. And as they interacted and met these uh, inner city teenagers uh, and they heard their stories, they realized that a lot of these inner city youth, they belong to gangs. And as they heard about some of their life experiences and how they uh, saw many of their family members and many of their friends shot down because these rival gangs uh, are in constant war with one another. Uh, these college students were, were hearing these stories and they said, well, why, why, why do you join a gang in the first place? I, I just don't understand. Uh, it, it seems like a foolish choice. If you see all of these people join gangs and their lives end in either death or in prison, uh, why, why don't you just try to work hard in school and, and go to college like me? And to them, they just couldn't understand how these inner city youth could make a choice like that. And to them, it seemed foolish. But then you, to these inner city kids, joining gang made a lot of sense to them. It was their world, and even though they know it's not the ideal choice, uh, it made sense to them. But you know what didn't make sense to them is this. How can you, uh, a college student, why, why do you spend all of this money on a college education? Right? For some people, it's like forty to $50,000 a year just to go to school for four years. Why don't, why don't you just take that money and why don't you buy something useful like, like a car or a house? Why, why are you so worried about things like choosing the right major and uh, getting good grades? And again, this is coming from a perspective of somebody who has seen people die. And you're saying, you know, all of your anxieties and even your choice to put all that money into this education... I just don't understand it. That seems so foolish. You see, when we don't walk in another person's shoes, it can be hard to make sense of the choices of others, and it can be very easy to dismiss the choices of others as being foolish choices. And I think the reason we do that is because uh, the way we relate to people, what we typically do is we project our own experiences and we project our own perspective onto the experiences of others. And when we do that, we easily misunderstand people. Think about it. Husbands and wives do this all the time. Right? That's why uh, if you're thinking about getting married, do premarital counseling and uh, learn some communication skills because that's what husband and wives do all the time. I'm sure employers and employees do that all the time. You know, I read this book by this woman, and uh, she, she had a hard life, and she lost two of her children, two babies. And uh, she, was, she wrote this book uh, talking about hope and how she was able to uh, walk through those, that time, those hard times. And uh, she was recalling how someone tried to relate to her suffering of losing two children by talking about how she lost her cat. And uh, needless to say, that's not a very helpful thing to do, and that's not very appreciated because, uh, you know, you can't really compare losing a cat to losing two babies. But we humans, we're, we're very insensitive in that way, and we're a little bit self-centered in that way. And the way we make sense of other people is oftentimes we take our own experiences and our own perspective, and we project it upon others. But here's where it becomes a problem, a, a big problem. It becomes a big problem when we do that and when we relate to God in that way. When we try to understand God through our own experiences and through the lens of our own perspective, we actually don't see God as he really is. 
We don't see God as he has revealed himself. When we try to understand God on our terms and when we try to fit God into our own expectations of what he should be like, then we end up with a God not as he is, but a God who coincidentally looks very similar to us. And that's, that's the problem. That's the struggle of what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews and the Greeks, they had a problem with the message of the cross. You see, for the Jews, they, they viewed God within the paradigm, their own paradigm of their own expectations of what God should be and what God should do. They understood God within the paradigm of their messianic expectations. In other words, they expected that God would send the kind of Messiah who would be this prominent political leader and bring the nation of Israel back to prominence. But what did they see in Jesus? They saw a man dying a humiliating death. They saw someone stripped of his dignity, mocked, scorned. They saw someone whose last and final moments was a cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see, from a Jewish perspective, there is no way God would work in that way or God would operate in that way. There is no way that God would send a Messiah or a Christ to die a death in such a way. It's foolishness. And yet the Greeks, on the other hand, and they valued things like wisdom and knowledge and philosophy. They valued a well-articulated worldview, one that made sense of life. They valued people who could explain life in a coherent way and in a persuasive way and in a convincing way. And they judged the validity of a philosophy or worldview based on the amount of applause it would receive and based on what the life of the teacher looked like. And that's why they didn't respect somebody like the Apostle Paul. And they said, this man, he suffered so much. This man, he works with his hands and he makes tents. There is no way his teaching could be all that good and all that glorious if he can't even make money off of the very thing that he teaches. And when they hear the message of the cross, it makes no sense to them either. It's a message of weakness and defeat. It's a message of struggle and suffering. It's foolishness. You know, think about it. Even in our culture, if you want the glorious life, how do you get there? Well, you do what's best for you. You promote yourself. You market yourself. You network with powerful and influential people. You may even have to step on some other people to get where you want to go because only the strong survive. You may even do some good, but you do good and you hope that you net some return. You hope that people like you. You hope that it helps your reputation. You hope it spares you from the judgment of society. But in the end, the way to the glorious life is through power, through gain, through victory. But what has someone said to you? You know, the way to the glorious life is actually to die to yourself. It's actually not to seek your honor, but to seek the honor of others. It's actually to lower yourself and to lift others up. It's actually to humble yourself and to wash the feet of others. It actually means that you don't retaliate against your enemies, but you love them. 
It means that you love people to the point of even sacrificing your very own well-being. It means that you count it joy when you experience trials of various kinds. It means you don't honor the, the rich and the powerful, but you honor the powerless orphans and the widows and aliens. Foolishness. And that contrast is so astounding, and it's so easy to see how that can make absolutely no sense to people. But that is why we have to grasp the message of the cross. Because when we understand who God is and how he has revealed himself, especially in the act of the cross, then we begin to see the power and the wisdom of God. Then all of these things that the Bible speaks about start to make a lot of sense to us. You know, I actually get a lot of this from a 16th century theologian named Martin Luther. And uh, if you're familiar with Martin Luther, he was the, the guy that sparked the Protestant Reformation. And uh, he lived in a time where some of the practices of the church were, you know, at best questionable. And so he criticized a lot of uh, the practices of the church during his time. And uh, one of the ways that he critiqued it is he made a contrast between what he called theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. And uh, basically what he says is theologians of glory, what they do is they build their theology in light of what they expect God to be. And therefore they define everything and all of their categories are in view of that expectation. So what is power? Well, power is understood as strength. What is blessing? Well, blessing is understood as wealth. Why? Because based on human experiences, one would expect God to operate in the same way. But a theologian of the cross, he says, builds their theology in light of how God actually revealed himself to be climactically on the cross. See, in light of the cross, power is understood not as strength, but as weakness. Blessing is not understood as wealth, but as poverty. Joy comes by way of trials. Finding your life comes by way of losing it. And when you understand the cross, then you understand God. When you understand God, then you understand life. And for Luther, the starting point was the cross because that is where God climactically revealed himself as he is. As we think about that, perhaps the most important thing to understand through the lens of the cross is actually the nature of love. What gives life meaning? Love. See, human love tends to be very reactive. And what I mean by that is this. You, you see something attractive about the other person, and uh, because you see something attractive, you move towards them. And that's why it's, I think, so natural for people to think and assume that God's love works in the same way. And we say, well, if I'm attractive to God, if I can do enough good in my life, then God will love me. And I think that's actually why Moralistic and legalistic religions are uh, actually very popular and they make a lot of sense because they reflect, I think, how our hearts operate and how we tend to love people in a reactive way. But you see, the cross reveals something very different about the quality of God's love. The cross tells us this, that God's love is not reactive, but it's creative. It's not reactive, but it's creative. What does that mean? God doesn't love us because we are lovely. God makes us lovely through his loving us. 
You see the difference there? God doesn't love us in reaction to what we've done and to who we are. He loves us out of his sheer grace. And that is the difference between God's love and human's love. And that's what we see on the cross. See, if you look at 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, who, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, take a look at that verse for a, a moment. And uh, it's very interesting, this verse, because what you would expect it to say is uh, make a contrast between folly and wisdom. So you would expect it to say, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. But Paul doesn't say it's the wisdom of God. He says it is the power of God. Why? Because the gospel, the good news, the word of the cross, it's not ultimately a philosophical system that gives us more knowledge. The gospel is not some self-help program that we use to, to change our behaviors, to get what we want, to improve or to better ourselves. The gospel is the power of God. And as a power... It is the way that God drastically affects change within us and within our lives. What kind of change? You know, when we think of change, we probably limit the kind of change that we're looking for to behavioral change. You know, if we have an addiction or if we have uh, some kind of habit that we don't like to do, then uh, God's going to change that. And of course, that's true. But the gospel gets deeper than that. The power of the gospel reaches further than that to a level that is more foundational. The word of the cross has the power to change the core of who we are by turning our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. The word of the cross has the power to change our standing before God to being a people who are Guilty, now to being a people who are now righteous in him. The power has a, of the cross, it has the power to, to change our status from a status of death to now a status of life. And you think about those changes, in the final analysis, these are the kind of changes that matter the most and these are also the kind of changes that we ourselves are powerless to effect on our own. Only the gospel can do it. Only the cross can do it. And it's only when we embrace this cross that we'll see the ultimate wisdom in it. It's only when we do something very foolish in order to embrace the cross Something foolish like embrace our weakness, embrace our brokenness, embrace our poverty. It's only then that God's power will be revealed to us. Here's what I'd like for us to do tonight. Here's what I'd like us to reflect on tonight as we think about the cross and the meaning of it in our lives Ask yourself this. How do we know whether or not we understand the cross? How do we know whether or not we've embraced the cross? And again, if you're somebody that identifies as a Christian, if you're somebody that 
is used to going to church and have been to church for a long time, you may be thinking, of course I understand the cross. I've read the Bible so many times. I've read all of these Christian books. Of course I understand the cross. You see, I think this verse gives us uh, an implicit, simple test that can help us determine whether the cross is something that we really do embrace. And the test is this. Are you a fool? Now, of course, you can be a fool for other reasons other than the cross. Not to get political, but I think Donald Trump is a fool, not because he embraced the cross. But you, if you embrace the cross, then I think by necessity, you are going to be a fool. There are going to be things about you that won't make sense according to the wisdom of the world. I have a friend, and uh, he was an engineer by vocation. He graduated from an Ivy League university. He received a master's degree from another prestigious school, and he had a pretty successful career as an engineer. His wife, also well-educated, graduated from an Ivy League school. Successful family, well-educated family. What did they do? Well, he quit his job as an engineer. They moved their two kids to Cambodia in order to advance the gospel there. What fools. You know, I have a pastor friend who once told me about someone in his church who actually turned down a promotion at work. Why? Because he knew that it would just suck up every moment of his life, and he wanted some time so he could continue to lead small group in his church. What a fool. You know, I went to church with somebody a long time ago, and he was telling me this story about uh, the time where he was trying to save up to, to buy a house. And uh, his friends asked him, hey, wh wh why is it taking you so long to save up for this down payment to buy a house? And he told them, well, you know, part of the reason is I give 10% of my income away. And they thought, what? That's crazy. Why would you do that? What a fool. And I read the story of a Christian who owned a car dealership, and uh, you know, he, he realized that people who are actually more affluent pay lower prices when they buy cars because they're actually better negotiators, and he thought that was unfair to the poor. And so what he did was he decided, no more negotiation, I'm going to flatten the price of all these cars, and I'm going to make it more equitable for everybody. And as a result, he sacrificed some of his profits. What a fool. You know, in a world that seeks glory through things like power and status and material wealth, someone who gives up these things for the sake of others is going to look like a fool. But that's what the cross shows us, that Jesus was the ultimate fool because he gave up his glory he gave up his life. He gave up all that he had out of love to save people like us. Who are we? Well, you know, I know a lot of New Yorkers were like, hey, 
We're the best city in the world, right? Especially Manhattan. We're the best city in the world. We're New Yorkers. But really, at the end of the day, who are we? What is so good about us? And yet this God, this Jesus, would come and die on a cross, would take our judgment, would experience the very wrath and anger of God for us so that we might be spared from it? How foolish. But you see, that's the message of the cross. And that is the very lens in which if you put your faith in Christ, if you believe in this message, that's actually the very lens in which we ought to understand and view the world. And that's going to make us fools. But you know what? The world needs more of these kinds of fools, does it not? Have you thought about how racial divisions will be reconciled? You know, in my opinion, I think it happens when people in positions of privilege and power give up their power because they want to see the flourishing of other races. How, how are socioeconomic divisions going to be bridged? It happens when people in positions of privilege and people in positions of affluence, when they're willing to give it up so that those who don't have it can flourish. What do our marriages need? Our marriages need foolish husbands and foolish wives who seek to die to themselves and seek the blessing and the flourishing of their spouse. You see, the word of the cross is foolishness to the world, but it's the power of God. And if we believe in this message of the cross, it's going to make us fools as well. But here's the thing. When we embrace weakness, we'll experience God's power. When we embrace suffering, we'll experience God's blessing. When we embrace poverty, we'll experience God's riches. And that will make fools of us all in this world, but wise according to the wisdom of God. But it all starts with what we're remembering and celebrating tonight, which is the cross. And so on this Good Friday, let's remember the cross, let's embrace it, and let's allow it to be the very lens in which we understand the world, even though we may be considered fools to the world. Let's pray for a moment.